Well, good morning, Hope Bible Church. Merry Christmas. It's always a joy and privilege to be with you on this Lord's Day to open God's Word. And this morning we're going to be looking at a passage in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 3 through 17, Christian suffering for the sake of righteousness. And um, also, uh, we're so thankful. It's great to see some of the familiar faces that we have. Uh, over the years, and uh, and we're so thankful for your faithful partnering with us in advancing His kingdom, and training up leaders, and uh, counseling people with biblical counseling, as well as now we're involved in uh, planting a new church, and we're so thankful uh, for your love, prayers, and encouragement and support. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed by your grace how you lavished it upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a propitiation for us. We pray uh, today that we might be encouraged as this world just continues to seem to get darker and darker, that you might encourage us with this text today that Peter wrote to a people who were going through various trials, that we might learn how to suffer for the sake of righteousness in a way that is honoring and pleasing to you. Help me to speak your words uh, with clarity and uh, precision so that we might be able to learn and grow from this and that you would be glorified in our lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So today we're going to talk about a subject that doesn't make us feel very comfortable. Nobody really likes to say, we can say, suffer. Uh, but today we're going to be looking at this aspect of suffering for the sake of righteousness. Paul in Philippians wrote, he said uh, in Philippians 1, 29 through 30, he said, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. As a little bit of background going over to First Peter, um, Peter is recognized as the author of this book, but he also had an amu- amu- amuensis, um, probably is, was Silas or Silvanus, who was um, given the words to write down. First Peter was most likely written just shortly before July 64 AD when the city of Rome was burned. Um, Nero burned the city of Rome in order to rebuild it in a greater way that would bring himself glory. But through that fire, it destroyed much of the city. It destroyed its culture, its religious shrines, its houses, and many died in this, in this fire, and the Romans were devastated. But in order to redirect the, the blame, Nero made the Christians scapegoats for the fire, and they eventually became the focus of persecution throughout, throughout all of Rome, uh, the Roman Empire. But not all suffered to the same level. Uh, some suffered to varying degrees, as Peter mentions. But tragically, many were tortured, having been made lit, live torches encased in wax and burned in his, um, in his uh, feasts and parties. And others were burned with hot metal on parts of their bodies. Well, looking back at this text here, uh, that's at the beginning of First uh, Peter, we can see that Peter's audience was described as being described as pilgrims and aliens. 
and sojourners that had been scattered about throughout the whole region, which is now recognized as, as Turkey, in Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But Peter recognized them as being chosen. They were chosen by God according to his foreknowledge through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through his shed blood of Jesus Christ, whom they were called to obey. These believers at the time were dispersed abroad due to widespread persecution throughout the Roman Empire that was directed by Nero and also influenced by the culture to mistreat Christians. But Peter goes on in this first chapter and he describes how great a salvation they have through the living hope of Jesus Christ from the resurrection of the dead. And Peter says that they were blessed both by God and of the Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. They were given an inheritance. It was imperishable undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for them, and they are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Continuing on in the next section of the book of First uh, Peter, he gave exhortations as to how they should live in light of their great salvation in a lost world. And later he covers in, in chapter 2, uh, areas of submission, how we should submit in various areas, whether it was to the government, civil authorities, all authorities placed over them in their jobs, and even in the home, husbands, uh, wives to their husbands and husbands to their wives in a like manner. And in the middle of that, Christ was recognized as being the example of that submission and submitting himself to the Father. And here we come to this new section that carries on from 3.13 to the end of the epistle. Um, exhortations that Peter gives in view of Christian suffering. And while Peter's already talked about suffering in the earlier part of the epistle, he now brings this issue to center stage. Suffering is a significant matter in the Christian faith. And you can't turn the New Testament more than three or four pages at a time and not see how one of God's faithful servants is experiencing suffering, persecutions, hardships, trials, afflictions in one way, one way or one way or another. So what we're going to discover in chapters 3, 13 through 17 is what is the experience that Christian can expect in their suffering for the sake of righteousness, and what are the exhortations that Paul that Peter gives in this passage. What we're going to see in this passage is six exhortations in suffering for the sake of righteousness. Six exhortations for, in suffering for the sake of righteousness. Now, actually, this, uh, this text here is just half of this paragraph. It's a long paragraph. It's about 10 verses, and it goes um, to the end of the chapter. But we're going to be focusing on the first part that is more focused on um, how we should respond in light of Christian suffering. In our text, in, starting at verse 13, Peter writes, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense for everyone to everyone who asks to give you an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. 
and keep a good conscience so that in the thing which, in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now we've got kind of an extended outline in this passage, so I'll run through it twice if you want to take your notes and, and catch all the points uh, initially here. So in verse 13, we're going to see Peter exhorts them to desire to do good. Desire to, to do good. In the first part of verse 14, we see suffer for the sake of righteousness. Suffer for the sake of righteousness. And then in 14b, the second part of 14 and, and the first part of 15, sanctify Christ in your heart. And number four, sanctify Christ in your heart, four is be prepared to give a defense that stems out of having a sanctified heart. That is in the second part of verse 15. Number five, maintain a good conscience. Maintain a good conscience. And lastly, in verse 17, recognize God's will and purpose in suffering. Recognize God's will and purpose in suffering. Desire to do good. Suffer for the sake of righteousness. Sanctify Christ in your heart. Be prepared to give a defense. Maintain a good conscience and recognize God's will and purpose in suffering. So number one, desiring to do good. In verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? In this text here, Peter gives three conditional uh, uh, clauses here, conditional sentences here. And it's a little bit reversed here. If you prove zealous for, for what is good, who is there to harm you? And starting out this verse, you don't see it in the in the English text, but in the in the original text, uh, there's a coordinating conjunction chi, which is and. It's linking the previous section with lo, what continues here in verse 13. It's really inferring from building upon the previous section. And Peter here is trying to stimulate the thinking of his audience with this question. In verse 12, he concluded promising that the Lord's favor is upon the righteous and evildoers will ultimately be punished in midst of their mistreatment while you are doing good. And believers can be assured that it is God's omniscience, God is omniscient and he knows all things perfectly and completely, and he will reward believers for their suffering and bless them, and he will punish the wicked for their evil deeds. He will never forsake you. The implication is that if you do evil and someone that is someone does evil to you and harms you, you have your only if you do evil, I'm sorry, the implication is if you do evil to someone and, and someone harms you, you only have yourself to blame. But if you do good and receive harm, God stands next to you to be strengthened uh, by him. Romans 8, 3, uh, 831 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Amen? And Hebrews 13, 6 says, 
so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? So the second part of this passage, uh, this verse here is, if you prove zealous for what is good, um, being zealous for what is good, in Ephesians 2.10, Paul wrote that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And believers do, who do good are characterized by acts of kindness and love, generosity, unselfishness, and thoughtfulness. Listen to a couple of verses that characterize this, the way we should be zealous for doing good. Psalm 37.3 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Psalm 125.4, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and, do, and to those who are upright in their hearts. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Proverbs 11.23, The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. In reference to giving, and God is able, in 2 Corinthians 9.8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Galatians 6, 9, and 10 says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have the opportunity, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith. And Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all aspect, all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's interesting that word zealous is the word um, that has a sense of intensity or enthusiasm. In fact, that was the word used more to describe uh, political um, radicals that were zealots in that time. But here, Peter is exhorting the readers not to become po political extremists, but rather to spend their energy on doing good, intensely in doing good, enthusiastically. We're going to suffer until the Lord takes us home in this present evil age. And Peter assures us that nothing can ultimately harm us if we continue to walk in God's paths and the pain that's inflicted on a, on on us is only temporarily, and that will be vindicated by God on the last day. We should be zealous to do good works. Titus two fourteen says, "Who gave himself to who who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." Also, sometimes your good works have a great influence on unbelievers. And Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So that is point one, doing, desire to do good. Point two, we see in ver the first part of uh, 14a is suffer for the sake of righteousness. Now here's another conditional clause, and there's, in the Greek, there are various levels of conditional clauses, and this is more of a remote possibility. 
So Peter's trying to say that if there's a possibility that you are going to be suffering for good, he says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. So not everybody may experience this. Um, it's more of in, in a remote form um, for you guys who enjoy grammar. I, I teach grammar in our seminary, Greek grammar and Hebrew. So there's some grammarians out there. Indicative mood is a reality and the subjunctive is uh, a probability. And then uh, this is an optative here. So it's a possibility. And then you got the imperatives that are farther from uh, reality, uh, from uh, reality. And so in those imperatives, make those uh, obedience your reality. But this is an optative. So it's a remote possibility. And he is saying that you are blessed if you have the privilege or honor to experience these kinds of sufferings or hardships. First Peter is common throughout the whole epistle talking about different, different types of suffering in 2.19 and 20. He says, for this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there when you sin and you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And we're familiar with Matthew 5, 10 through 12, and the Beatitudes where, where Jesus said and taught, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because, because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great. Your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Continuing on. Of point three, so do well, suffer for the sake of righteousness. And number three in verse 15, verse, uh, 14b and, and 15, sanctify Christ in your heart. And he starts out with two prohibitions, two emphatic prohibitions. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. This is taken from Isaiah 8, uh, verses 12 and 13. But he says... Peter's saying you should not fear men, you should not be intimidated, nor be troubled by them, because God is our protector. And continuing on, he says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And this word is, um, this sanctify is an urgent summary action. Do it now. In the totality, it's not a continuing ongoing uh, um, practice, but the idea is in, in, the to, in the totality of, your, of yourself, that you should set apart yourself for him. Now, we're called uh, saints, as pa Paul and others make reference to us, and many people will say, well, we're, set up, uh, we're saints because we're set apart to do good works or uh, glorify him. But more so, we are saints because as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we've gotten been blessed with the imputed righteousness of him, and he sees us as holy and righteous based on the person and work of Jesus Christ in the cross 
for all who believe. And he, he took our suffering and he took our sin. It's interesting, uh, in the original languages, there's ra uh, races, <laughs> I'm thinking of the word in, in, in Spanish, they're root words that have a similar meaning. So if you think of this, this word is hagia, hagiasate, is, the, is this imperative uh, verb. And you, there's other words, hagios, which is saints. There's hagios, which is holy. There's hagiazo, which is to sanctify. There's hagiasmos, which is sanctification. And then there's hagiotes, which is holiness, which is describing, all of these are describing a dedicated or consecrated sense or a unique form of purity towards the Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ is a supreme example of who we, uh, who we should follow in reference to sanctifying our hearts to Christ. And that means all of the totality of us, all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Our Lord, before he was crucified in John 17, 7 through 19, he said, he prayed to his father, sanctify them in their truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world for their sakes. And this is very emphatic. He didn't have to say I in the, in the original language because it's enclosed within the, within the verb itself. Uh, we need to use the, the pronoun. And the pronoun was used here to put emphasis in himself. And then the reflexive pronoun, he says, I sanctify myself that they themselves may also be sanctified in the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. It's precious too. Also in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 14, the writer of Hebrews says, by this we will have been we we will have by this will we have been sanctified he's pointing back to a time that, that when this action started which is our moment of our salvation and this action of sanctification continues to the moment to this day and it's all his work in us we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time for, uh, onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, literally. And in the practice and application of, of this idea of sanctification, Matthew 6.33 says, But seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness and his provision. He knows our needs and he provides all our needs. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Romans 12.1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, 
a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will, uh, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Continuing on. Desire to do good, suffer for the sake of righteousness, sanctify your hearts. And four, in the second part of verse 15, be prepared to give a defense. Peter writes, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that it's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Always being ready. It's an absolute word here. There's nothing qualifying it that gives me an exception or an out why, when I shouldn't be ready, but always being ready to make a defense also to everyone who asks you to give an account. So we should be ready, always. We're prepared. We're willing to submit to this instruction. Uh, the word defense here, or the word um, apologia, is the word defense. It's not the sense of apologizing. And also it comes, the word apologetics comes from this word here as a form of a, how do we defend the faith? And we have this instruction with meekness and reverence and in in a sense of humility and how God wants us to respect other people in whom we are giving um, a defense for our faith of the hope that's within us. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I've also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of of the opportunity, and let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how how you should respond to each person. Are you ready? Are you locked and loaded? Yeah, it's just like one of those Western films. I'm ready. Um, you know, for those who may be new to the faith, I want to encourage you. It might be a little bit intimidating to open up your Bible and try to start talking to people about the Lord. Um, often early in the faith, we have this desire to let people know what, what God has done in our lives, but they're not quite ready. I want to encourage you. Um, uh, there's a Grace Evangelism small little card. It has, who is God? What is, who is man? Who is Jesus Christ? And what you should do in repentance and, and believe and repent. And there's about three verses in each of those sections describing that God is a creator of all things. He is a creator of his law, and he demands perfection, perfect obedience to his law. Man is fallen, helpless, bankrupt, and he is, he is, he is deserving of judgment before God. Who is Jesus Christ? Second person of the Trinity. He came as God in the flesh, and he came to give his life as a propitiation on the cross for the sins for all who believe. And you should. He's calling all men everywhere to repent and flee the wrath of God that is coming upon 
all unbelievers. That is how we should be ready. If you tape it on the inside of your Bible, and uh, or just spend time studying the Word of God and be be able, whoever you're talking to, be able to have a conversation and present the Word of God with a form of gentleness and reverence. We don't want to debate. We don't aren't trying to win a fight. We're just God's instrument who's going to be working through us, and God is the one who changes people. It's Calvin uh, and Owen both kind of said the same thing, that it's the Holy Spirit that saves what he wants to save exactly in the moment of, that he wants to save them, if he's going to save them. He's going to sanctify who he wants to sanctify, just as us being instruments to this. And, in the, and for those who reject his truth, he brings condemnation through the message. And we are just instruments to bring that truth to the unbeliever. You say also here to everyone who asks you to give an account. Sometimes, you know, there are other phrases that you can come up with that give you the liberty that might give you an opportunity that wasn't there before. I don't know. There's one evangelical pastor who was well known that used to say, you know, how are you doing? And you could just, you're going to get that right when you're walking through a line at the store, paying for your, or ordering food out in a restaurant. How are you doing? Oh, he said, better than I deserve. Well, that, that prompts a question, what? Better than I deserve? What, what are you talking about? And it might open up a door, you know? Or, you know, uh, are you ready to meet the Lord when you die? Or are you prepared to meet Him? And you can have your tracks ready. And it could initiate new relationships, following up with them. Um, Paul said, Pray for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me that I may boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is when he's in in jail. Just think about this too. Sometimes we can get a little bit comfortable in our faith and with our families, with with the brothers in the faith. But we need to realize too that we've got circles of influence where God has placed you where people you have access to, I don't have access to, your leaders don't have access to, your neighbors, your families, people you work with, your past friends, your co-workers, uh, those who you interact with the de- during the day, take the most of those opportunities. Open your mouth and don't put your light under a basket, but let it shine forth. I remember uh, a couple of people really impacted me in my Christian life. When I was an unbeliever, I used to do, a, a, we were, Leslie and I were accounts for 20 years here, and one of the dearest families that helped lead me to the Lord, Lord used to lead me to the Lord, three generations of people, uh, families, do, uh, three generations in this family in construction, and in the early part of my career, the sweet Mrs. Jenkins, she would come up and she'd say, Steve, do you know if you're going to heaven? And I, you know, I, I didn't know the Lord at that time. I'd say, I sure hope so, you know, or whatever. And God used them to help me know, come to know the Lord. But the seriousness in which she spoke to me was impactful. In addition, uh, there's a husband and wife. Uh, this one, the wife uh, uh, had worked for uh, Living Waters and also uh, Todd, Todd Friel, is it? Yeah. Uh, for, for quite a few years. And the pastor's mother 
gave her a purse that had pockets inside the, her purse. And usually ladies', po- ladies uh, uh, purses are weighed down with a lot of different things, but she had gospel tracts in her purse, and she was serious. When she talked to people, she spoke with all seriousness in her eyes about the Lord and the condition of their salvation. That's where we need to be. So are you ready? Are you ready to make a defense of your faith? Can you defend the gospel? Can you articulate important key doctrines? And can you do it in a God-honoring way with gentleness and reverence? Or do you like to fight and debate that is a way that it leaves a bad testimony? God is the one who changes the heart. Continuing on. Verse 16, maintain a good conscience. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. The conscience is that faculty in, that God has given us. It's a gift that distinguishes between right and wrong. It either afflicts or comforts the person depending on their actions and depending on the condition of their conscience. But one thing is for sure, the conscience is not the voice of God. We need, as believers, we need to train our mind and heart to know God's Word. We need to have an informed conscience of God's Word that is sensitive to what is right and wrong according to what the Bible and God, God, God's Word says. The word conscience comes from uh, two Latin words, con meaning with or socio, having a sense of to know. And to, so it's with knowledge. Uh, is the idea. In Romans 2, 14 and 15, he said, Paul wrote, for when, when the Gentiles do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are, are law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts and their consciences bearing witnesses and their thoughts altern, altern, alternately accusing them or defending them. So the conscience can be compared to a window. So a couple of commentators have used this idea of a window or skylight where sun is coming through there. And the issue is that if that skylight is not maintained in a clean sense, then you're going you're gonna to damage your conscience. As it gets dirtier and dirtier, it could lead to a defiled conscience. In, first, uh, in Titus chapter 1, verse 15, it says, to the pure, all things are pure, and to the defiled and unbelieving, uh, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Also, there's a, a seared conscience, one that's been so sinned against that it's no longer sensitive to what, what is right and wrong, and that's in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. There's a conscience that depends on knowledge, the light, coming through the window. And as a believer studies the word, he gains better understanding and he will, uh, he will begin to understand the will of God and his conscience will become more sensitive to that right and wrong. Essentially, you need to exercise your mind and heart to inform your conscience and keep your conscience strong and pure. Paul said in Acts 24, 16, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. 
Also, um, if we do not grow spiritually and in obedience, we can have a weak conscience and be upset very easily by small things in this world. Uh, one commentator said, so how does a good conscience help a believer in times of trial and opposition? For one thing, it fortifies him with courage because he knows he is right with God and men so that he not be afraid. And this is from uh, Wearsby. Inscribed on, he wrote further about uh, Martin Luther. Inscribed on Martin Luther's monument at Worms, Germany, are his courageous words spoken before the church council on April 18th, 1521. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. So his, con- his conscience was bound to God's word and it gave him the courage to defy the whole established church. A good conscience also gives us peace in our hearts. When we have peace within, we can face battles without. The restlessness of an uneasy conscience divides the heart and drains the strength of a person so that he's unable to function at his best. How can we boldly witness Christ if the conscience is witnessing against us? A good conscience removes us from the fear of what other people may know about us say against us or do to us. When Christ is Lord and we fear only God, we need not fear the threats, opinions, actions or of our enemies. And, and Psalm 118.6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And it was the matter that Peter failed when he feared the enemy and denied the Lord. So Peter made it clear that conscience alone is not the test of what is right or wrong. The person can be involved in either well-doing or evil-doing, but for a person to disobey God's word and claim it is right simply because his conscience does not convict them is to admit that something is radically wrong with the conscience. The conscience is a safe guide only when the word of God is his teacher. We're to maintain a good conscience, and also that means that we need to confess our sins, just as 1 John 1.9 says. We must keep that window clean. We must spend time in God's Word and let in the light. And a strong conscience is a result of obedience based on knowledge, and a strong conscience makes for a strong Christian witness to the lost. It also gives us strength in times of persecution and difficulty. Reflecting on a couple of verses that Peter said in chapter 2, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in keeping in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. A little later in 2.15, he says, For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. 1 Timothy 1.5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Hebrews 13.18 says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct, conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And returning back to 3.21 later that follows our text, corresponding to that, baptism that now saves you not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And finally, number six, recognize God's will and purpose in suffering. Recognize God's will and purpose in suffering. Here we have another one of those remote conditional clauses, uh, fourth class clause. It says, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer also or that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing for what is wrong. If you really wanted to kind of translate this, um, there's a couple interesting words in here that talk about God's will in a verb form and a, and a, and a, uh, in a noun form. Um, for it is better if the will of God wills that you should suffer. Yeah. For it is better if the will of God wills that you should suffer. Here we see um, we need to recognize God's will in purpose and suffering. The Apostle Peter explains God, God's reasoning as to how we should suffer, and he makes a contrast between suffering for good and suffering when we have sinned or done something bad. Uh, it's interesting that there's two unique words describing those, those who are doing good on a continual, ongoing basis, even those who are acting bad, doing bad. Um, um, agathos poyontas y kakos poyontas. Good and bad. Agathos is good, kakos is malo. Yeah. And he uses this con- contrastive word, krypton, to describe the word as using better as a comparative sense showing the superiority of one uh, class over an excellency or quality and desirability or uh, suitability more highly than the other. So he's making this contrast between suffering for good or suffering for what is wrong. Another thing to think about in this, in this verse here um, with these, uh, the verb and the noun form that talk about the will of God is the word Thelema, which is the will of God, and then you've got will or desire in, a, in the form of a verb, thelo. Um, these um, thelo can be compared to another form of, of God's power and will. Um, bulomai is a decretive will by his direct intention. It's it's he's decreed it. Bulomai or uh, Thalo is more that it's it's a desire, it's a will of God. Uh, in Ephesians 1.11, uh, it says the two words are together, and, and uh, he says, uh, Paul writes, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the bulomai of, of his will, the, the, the counsel or the decree of his will. So here in this verse, he is talking more about a desired will. If it's the will of God, wills that you should suffer. And then this idea is, um, in Thalo, is an inclination or an attitude of the mind, especially one that favors one over another. It's, it's really precious to go through and do a study on the word Thelema, as the will of God and seeing how Christ fulfilled the will of God through many verses. And I think it's applicable to us and it should drive us to have a greater desire to be uh, following the will of God as it relates to 
this aspect of suffering, doing the will of God in a way that is pleasing to him. Um, Christ is the maker of the, the, the divine will. There's a, uh, the third petition of the Lord's Prayer expresses a consent uh, to God's will that Christ exemplifies in Matthew 26.42. In 26.42, it says that he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Also, it's because he lives in a divine will that everyone who does that will, he calls his brother and sister and his mother. In Mark 3.35, whoever does the will of, the, of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In the Gospel of John, he makes a profound Christological point um, talking about the will of God who sent him, executing it and mediating it. In John 4.34, he says, Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Later on in, in 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek the will, my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Tom, uh, also, we can see the essential union of the Father and the Son coming together. Uh, John 7, 28, then Jesus cried out in the temple teaching and saying, both of you, you both know me and know where I am from, and I have not uh, come to my, uh, come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. In John 1, 18, he's one with the Father. No one has seen God at any time, only the begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained. And he also hears his words. For the Father, in John 5, 20, for the Father loves his Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. And as to the content of this will, it's to lead those who believe in him to eternal life. In John six thirty nine and 40, this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I, I lose nothing, but I raise him up on, uh, I, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And here we see a natu- uh, the willing submission of Christ. Uh, Jesus cried out in John 7, 28. Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, both you, um, I say that one before? Yeah, I already said that one. I'll skip over that. <laughs> he secures his power by the virtue of God's hearing in John 9, 31. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears them. Precious. John 12, 25, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. So he implies this gift of himself in the fulfillment of this salvific mission. In Hebrews 10, 7 and 9, 
He says, then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Verse 9, 10, 9. Then he says, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. So we can see how Christ had this desire to do the will of the Father, and we should be moved also as wanting to do the will of the Father and honor Him and glorify Him for it. It's better than to suffer for doing bad. And also, we are familiar with Second um, Corinthians 5.9, Therefore we also have it as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. It's the second, or it's it's in the second verse of the Lord's Prayer, uh, going back to the first verse. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are submitting our will to his will, how he ever pleases in this earth. Also, we're going to see how we need, we're, suffering in this world. Paul was chosen to be an instrument for suffering in, in Acts 9 when he was called to be a servant of the Lord. Go, for he is my chosen is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. John, uh, in John 15, 18, 21 he says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you, were of this wor- if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Verse 20 and 21 and John, further in John 15. Remember that the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will also keep yours, keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who has sent me. Paul exhorted uh, Timothy at the end of his life before he was being martyred in Second Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now it's been revealed by the appearing of our Lord, of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. A couple more, going back to First Peter. Uh, for this finds favor in First Peter two nineteen through twenty five. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sours, sorrows when suffering unjustly. What credit is there if, when you sin, you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if you, 
but if when you do it, what is right and suffer for it, patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any de- deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. In one six, in this you greatly rejoice, even now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. In 4.19, Peter wrote, Therefore, those, who also, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And before wrapping up, he goes on even in chapter 4, talking more about this suffering in chapter 4, verses 12 through 15. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Now capture this. So do not suffer bad. In 15, he makes this reference for those who are suffering bad or an exhortation not to. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or thief, civil crimes, or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. And uh, I just want to share this troublesome meddler word. It's an interesting word. We have uh, three words that kind of describe pastor or elders in the church. Uh, Poimen, episcopos, and presbyteros. Those are the three words. Interestingly, in this describing a troublesome meddler, uses the word episkopos, but it's used uh, in a compound word with alotri episkopos. And the word alotri um, always has an indication that denotes that this activity is foreign to the doer. And Tone says, <laughs> this is my Spanish coming out. So, so then... Um, be careful not to be a troublesome meddler in activities that don't pertain to you. Yeah? You can cause a lot of problems. A lot of, a lot of problems in families and churches. And <laughs> so, in conclusion, uh, Peter gives us these six exhorta- exhortations in suffering for the sake of righteousness, desiring to do good, suffering for the sake of righteousness, sanctifying Christ in your heart, being prepared to give a defense, maintaining a good conscience, and recognizing God's will and purpose in suffering. And just closing with uh, the next verse that follows in this text, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, What a precious text. Having 
having known that in the humility, your son having an eternal relationship with the Father and the plan predetermined would come to earth and give his life as a ransom for men, perfectly fulfilling your law and having become the perfect sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And Father, you rightly judging all of our sins, past, present, and future, until the last breath we take. Being omniscient, you placed all those on your Son and did not restrain in any judgment that we deserved that he received in that time on the cross. Father, may we not forget that and make light of it, but rejoice in having been given a new life, having been resurrected from the dead. He sits at your right hand, and one day he will come for us. Lord, we have all been appointed to suffer in various ways. And just pray that you will help strengthen us with this text, that we may do good, suffer for righteousness, and sanctify the Lord in our hearts. Help us to be prepared for making a defense whenever there are opportunities. Help us to maintain a clean conscience by your word and uh, obedience and keeping our conscience clear and also recognizing your will and purpose in these sufferings and having a desire to suffer for good. Just thank you and ask this in Christ's name. Amen.